The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Well, why don't you take your Bibles uh, with me and open up to Daniel chapter 8. We're going to continue our study through the, the book of, of Daniel. And as I was thinking about chapter 8 in, in Daniel, I was uh, thinking about a, an event in the life of uh, James Montgomery Boyce. Now, James Montgomery Boyce was a uh, Reformed Christian theologian and author. He's the founder of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals and the senior minister of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia from 1968 until his death in June of 2000. And when he began teaching through the book of Daniel, one of his elders asked him, are you going to teach the second half of the book? Which on the surface appears to be a strange question because why wouldn't you finish what you started? Uh, But in the case of, of Daniel, it seems to be a legitimate question because the first half of the book is very different from the second half of the book. The first six chapters of Daniel are filled with all the stories that we know and love. Daniel in the lion's den, the handwriting on the wall, the fiery furnace. It's all very familiar, easy to understand for the most part. And there's immediate application. You know, trust in the Lord, be courageous, be a Daniel. The Lord is with you in trouble. But the last half of Daniel is very different. It's like we've stepped into a different dimension. And nothing is familiar There's lions with wings and four-headed leopards and beasts with ten horns and unicorn goats. And all of a sudden, you're not in Kansas anymore, and you're clicking your heels saying there's no place like home, or maybe for us, there's no place like Romans, which happens to be the next book that we're going to in in our, our, our ministry. So I'm looking forward to Romans, but we're not there yet. And it's my prayer that you walk away from this chapter in Daniel, in our study, with the same thing that the Apostle Paul would say about the book of Daniel, that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. And and personally, this study has been so helpful and so encouraging to me, and I've been able to put some uh, pieces together that before now were just kind of laying on the side of the table Uh, But now you can see how they fit into the puzzle, and it's been a real joy for me personally. But I'll also admit that these are some of the most challenging passages of Scripture to understand and to apply to our lives. And even when we look at Daniel himself, Daniel struggled to understand what was revealed to him. In chapter 8 and verse 15, it says, When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. I, I don't know what I'm looking at. And after the explanation was given... In verse 27, it says, uh, then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. You know, I I got shingles, and Daniel got sick for days after having to work through this. And then he says, I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. Talk about difficult. And we're jumping in today into the deep end of Bible prophecy. But there's gold in them, there hills, and we're going after all of it, okay? Uh, So we're going for the gold in uh, in Daniel chapter 8. So let's start at verse 1, just to review where we've already been. Daniel chapter 8, starting at verse 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, 
A vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. And I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but the one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw, hold on a minute, I just lost my place. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen, standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him. And the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, once again, and we thank you for uh, this text. We thank you for your word. And uh, Father, we pray that you would use this word in our lives, that you would help us to see the, the beauty just the grand scope of all that you've revealed here. And uh, Father, that you would help us, Lord, to, uh, to not only understand, but, but that we would apply these things to our lives. And Father, that we'd have a greater vision of our Savior. And Father, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. The last time that we were together in Daniel, we covered the first two beasts of Daniel's vision, uh, the ram in verses 3 to 4 and the goat in verses 5 to 8. And uh, we didn't have to do any guesswork to figure out who those different beasts represented because it's explained for us down in verses 20 and 21. If you look down at verse 20, it says, The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. And in verse 21, the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. And even though these beasts have unique characteristics, which we covered last week, they're both described as animals who magnify themselves. And there are none who can rescue from their power. These are these powerful kingdoms that dominated the Mediterranean world and the children of Israel were nothing more than collateral damage as these superpowers waged war with one another. You know, kind of like a, a rag doll just kind of pulled back and forth between the superpowers. They were completely helpless. But each of these empires saw their end. And their kingdoms were given to another. After Alexander, the, the one who was the first king of, of Greece after he died at the young age of 33, his empire was broken up into four different regions, and four of his generals battled it out 
until they became the leaders of these four different regions. And that's what we find if you look back in uh, uh, chapter uh, 8 again. In chapter 8, it speaks about, in verse 8, the, the male goat magnified himself. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. That happened at the age of 33. And in its place, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So four of his generals battled it out until they became the leaders of four different regions. There was Lysimachus, who was the ruler over Thrace and Asia Minor. That was up in the north. There was Cassander. He ruled over Macedonia and Greece to the west. There was Ptolemy who ruled over Egypt, that was in the south. And then there was Seleucus, who controlled uh, Syria and Babylon. And these four horns that came up in the place moved out toward these four winds of heaven. And actually, there was a, a fifth general, uh, but uh, he tried to gain power and was defeated because there was only going to be four and no more. Exactly as the, the scripture said it would happen. And these rulers would continue to promote and the spread of the Greek culture and language, just like Alexander did before them. It was, it's what's called the Hellenization of the world. or the, It comes from the word Hellenes, which is an ancient word for Greece. And throughout this 1.5 million square miles of territory, all the people started speaking the same language. And some of you might have heard of the, uh, the, the word the Septuagint or the LXX, uh, which is the, uh, the Roman numeral for, for 70. Uh, the, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures, that actually comes up during this time. During this time, this history tells us uh, Jews in, the, in Egypt, uh, which was controlled by uh, Ptolemy, uh, soon adopted Greek as their native tongue. And because the bulk of uh, these Jews, together with their proselytes, those that they converted to Judaism, no longer had access to the scriptures, beginning in the third century, a translation into Greek was made. First of the Torah, later of the other books, this translation was produced over a period of years. It was known as the Septuagint, that the scripture should exist in Greek was tremendously significant. And listen to this. Later, of course, it, was vast, it vastly facilitated the spread of Christianity. All of this happened. God was working behind the scenes during all these countries and regions warring against one another. We have a God who is awesome. And even by the hands of wicked men, God will still move forward his plan. He'll even use these evil men as a vehicle to spread the gospel of his kingdom. Our God cannot be stopped. And this should give us great confidence as we prepare ourselves for this final figure who's known as the small horn. Take a look again at verse 9. Look at verse 9. It says, Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth. It trampled them to the ground. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him. And the place of his sanctuary was thrown down, and on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. And what does all of this mean? And is George really going to teach through the second half of the book of Daniel? The answer to that last question is yes, we are going to go through the second half. But before we get to the explanation of these verses, let's take a look at the, the holy huddle that Daniel was brought into. Look at the next verse. Look at verse 13. He says, Then I heard one speaking. So this is the conversation that happens here in verses 13 to 14. It says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one 
said to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror? So as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. So in this vision, Daniel is brought into this holy huddle where he listens into the conversations of the holy ones. And that specific title, holy ones, has already been used in the book of Daniel to refer to angels. Uh, Back in chapter 4, in verse uh, 13, Daniel says, I was looking in the visions of my mind as I lay in my bed. This is uh, talking about Nebuchadnezzar here. I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. So what we're talking about here, these holy ones who are having a conversation, this is an angelic Q&A, and they're concerned about what's happening on the earth. And particularly, what they're concerned about is this last, this final aspect of Daniel's vision. You know, this little horn who's magnifying itself to be equal with the commander of the host and removing the regular sacrifice. That's particularly what they're talking about. They're talking about this little horn and the the horror that he will bring. So don't miss the timing of all this. Even this little horn, as destructive as he may be, will still have his end. He's got 2,300 days. He's got an end too. So just like these other kingdoms, kings had an end, This little horn will also have his end. Because the question is, how long? And the answer comes back for 2,300 evenings and mornings. So just like the ram, just like the goat, this horror will have an end. And also, and this this is significant, don't miss the setting that these angels are talking about here. They're asking questions about the regular sacrifice that would take place in the holy place. Do you remember where we are in the book of Daniel? (laughs) Daniel is in exile. There was no sacrifice going on in the holy place. Daniel would have had this vision uh, in the year 550 or 551 B.C. The Jewish temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., 36 years or 35 years earlier than this vision was given. In 586, the walls of Jerusalem were breached. Jerusalem was looted of all of its treasure. The city was burned to the ground, including the temple. So there hasn't been a regular sacrifice in the holy place for decades. But here in this vision, these angels are talking about this regular sacrifice that would happen again. There's actually here a prophetic word that the temple is going to be restored. So as Daniel is listening to this vision, he's, he's really hearing about what's going to happen in the future with a temple that's going to be restored that doesn't even, that's not even in operation during this time. It's been burned down. And as Daniel's trying to understand this vision, Out of nowhere stands before him one who looked like a man. Look at verse 15. I call this the the disorientation. Look at verse 15. It says, When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. That word behold is used for something that's shocking, surprising. As Daniel is contemplating this this vision, all of a sudden this man appears out of nowhere and, and someone between the banks of the, the Ulai Canal addresses the man who's standing before him. I mean, like I said, this is totally disorienting. Like, what, what in the world is going on? Verse 16, I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Ulai, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. Only two angels mentioned by name in Scripture, Michael and Gabriel, and both their names show up in the book of Daniel. 
Daniel chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 12, uh, Gabriel and Michael show up. The only other place that we find Gabriel showing up is in the book of, of Luke where he announces the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus the Messiah. He's a messenger angel. Luke chapter 1, when he speaks to the father of John the Baptist, listen to what he says. Luke chapter 1, verse 19, he says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of, of God. Remember, you know, uh, Zacharias was doubting whether or not you know, these things would come true, and Gabriel's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> do, do you know who I am? I'm Gabriel in the presence of God, and you're going to doubt me? I'm Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Gabriel is this messenger angel, stands in the presence of God. He's sent by God to speak, which leads us to ask another question, because there's a man, this voice that comes from over the Ulai Canal, and he is commanding Gabriel to speak. If Gabriel stands in the presence of God and God is the one who commands him to speak, then who is this other one who's commanding Gabriel to speak? I like what John Calvin says. He says, the one who commands the angel, this can be referred to Christ alone. And I agree with his observation. So right here in Daniel 8, you have the pre-incarnate Christ who's making an appearance just like he did in the fiery furnace, which reminds us that in the times of the severest affliction, that the Lord is not absent from his people, he is right there. He never leaves us and he never forsakes us. He's right here in the midst of this time of persecution. Amen. In Daniel chapter 8, he came near to where I was. Look at verse 17. He says, so he came near to where I was, Gabriel. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face, which is often how people respond to angelic beings. But he said to me, son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Uh, basically, he was so overwhelmed by this revelation that he passed out. You know, the, the, the Hebrew word used for sleep is like a coma, comatose state. But he touched me, made me stand upright. Look at verse 19. He said, behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur in the final period of the indignation for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. And here you have the, the words time of the end used at least three times. Verse 17, the time of the end. Verse 19, the appointed time of the end. Verse 19 again, the final period of indignation. But the question is the end of, of what? The end of what? Look at verse 23. I think verse 23 answers that question. In verse 23 it says, In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course. That's the time of the end that's being referred to. So we're not talking about the end of all time. What we're talking about is the, the end of the transgression, when the transgressors have run their course. At the end of that, that's what I'm talking about here. And when he talks about the end of the transgression, it's very similar to what we find elsewhere in Scripture. Like in Genesis chapter 15, when God says, the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It has not yet reached its end. It's not at a point yet where I'm ready to judge. He's talking about the end of their transgression. Or like in Genesis chapter 19 where the angels told Lot, we're about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. The, the, the city of Sodom and Gomorrah had reached their end. They reached their conclusion. The, the transgression had run its course and it was time for judgment to fall. And it's the Lord waiting for the course of iniquity to reach a certain limit before he decides to act. This is what the end is being referred to here. And with that background, we can jump into the explanation 
of the vision. Look at verse 20, the explanation. Verse 20 says, The ram which he saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. We covered that last week. Verse 21, the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. We covered that already as well. And then in verse 22, the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. And we covered that already as well. We talked about the four regions that split off of Alexander the Great's empire, the four regions to the north, south, east, and west. But what about verse 23? Look at verse 23. It says, In the latter period of their rule, speaking about these Greek kings that split off of Alexander the Great's empire, in the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise. During this period of time, during this, the, when the region had split, there would be a king who would arise. How is this king described? Insolent and skilled in intrigue. Verse 24. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. He will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. He will magnify himself in his heart and he will destroy many while they're at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. And this is the same one that the angel says earlier prevents the regular sacrifice from occurring so as to allow that to happen within the holy place. And the question is, is there anybody that fits this description of one who came out of the Greek empire and caused regular sacrifice to stop? And there's only one person who fits that description, and it's a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. And his career matches this description perfectly. So let's go back into the prophecy, and we'll, we'll help you put some of these pieces together. Look at verse 9. It says, Out of them came forth a rather small horn. Out of one of these four rulers came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. In uh, Emil Schur's classic series, The Jewish People in the Time of Jesus, he traces the history of Antiochus Epiphanes, who just as Daniel tells us, was a small horn that came up from small beginnings. He was a small horn. The, the word horn that's used in Daniel is just used to speak about a king or a kingdom. That's how it's explained down in verse 22, a king or a kingdom. So, so horn just means king or kingdom. So everywhere that we find horn doesn't mean it's talking about the same one. It's talking about a king, okay? That's, that's all that it means. So there's a little horn in chapter 7, but that's different than the little horn in chapter 8. And Antiochus IV was the little horn that came out of one of the four regions of the Greek Empire. Not the same as in chapter 7. This Antiochus became the king in 175 BC over the Seleucid Empire. That's the empire that ruled over Syria and Babylonia. He was the son of a, a man named Antiochus III. And he actually was not supposed to be the king in the first place. After Antiochus III, his father died... The kingdom passed down to his eldest son, Seleucus, but Seleucus was assassinated. And instead of the kingdom being passed down to his son, as would have been expected, Antiochus managed to weasel his way into the kingdom and take control over the kingdom. He was really a, a usurper of the throne. And since the son of his brother was too young and he was a hostage at the time, Antiochus just took this 
upon himself to become the next king. Verse 23 of Daniel 8 says, A king will arise insolent and very skilled. Skilled in intrigue. Literally, the, the word insolent means uh, strong of face. Some translations would say bold of face. He was bold-faced in his pursuits, willfully arrogant, skilled in intrigue. He was able to maneuver his way around difficult problems or riddles. That was Antiochus, and he figured a way to get onto the throne. And after taking the throne, he was determined to advance the superiority of the Greek culture and language and strengthen his hold on his kingdom. Verse 9 says he grew exceedingly toward the south, which was Egypt, and toward the east, which would have been Armenia. And also he grew toward the beautiful land, it says, or the glorious land. What is, what's that talking about? That's another name for Israel. In Jeremiah 3, verse 19, the Lord says this about Israel, how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of the nations. The beautiful land is Israel. The glorious land is Israel. Ezekiel calls it the glory of all the lands. And for a period of time, Antiochus sought to influence the beautiful land indirectly because this was part of his territory. So he was seeking some kind of influence. When Antiochus ascended the throne, there was a conservative high priest named Onias III in Jerusalem, and he opposed the Greek influence in Jerusalem. But Onias had a brother named Jason who promised Antiochus, if you make me high priest instead of my brother, I'll promise you more money from the temple treasury, and uh, I'll allow you to have more influence upon Jerusalem. So Antiochus drove out Onias, this conservative priest, and put in his place Jason, because Jason was going to get along with the program. And now the Greek influence was carried on with new energy. Daniel chapter 8, verse 25 says, And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. He was shrewd. He caused deceit to succeed. He was a planner of evil. And Antiochus believed himself to be the savior of the Jewish people, to be improving the conditions of this detestable race, he would say. And he started bringing all things Greek into Jerusalem. For example, a gymnasium was built in plain view of the Jewish temple. And you say, what's wrong with the gymnasium? Our English word gymnasium is from the Greek word gymnazo, which means to exercise naked. And that's what they did in the Greek gymnasium. They exercised naked. If, if you look at the uh, pictures of ancient Olympic games, all the men are unclothed. And according to history, even the Jewish priest forsook their service at the altar to take part in the games in the gymnasium. And some of the Jewish men became so ashamed of their differences during the games that they sought to artificially remove the marks of their circumcision because they wanted to look like everybody else. And this Hellenization spread of the Greek culture continued for at least three years underneath this Jason who was a high priest. And this is what's meant by this difficult verse in chapter 8 and verse 10, if you take a look at it. It says, it grew, this horn, the small horn, grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. How could Antiochus be described as causing the host of heaven to fall? This is what he's talking about. This is what it's talking about. It's figurative language used here about the Jewish nation. And that's what's explained in the interpretation. If you look down at verse 
24, if you look for, what's the interpretation of what was said in the prophecy? Look at verse 24. It says, his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. That's what's being referred to by these stars that fall from heaven. The mighty men and the holy people. He's going to come in and destroy them. And the holy people are described as stars in the sky. And that's actually not a rare designation for the holy people. You you do have passages like Job 38 that speak about the angels as stars of the heaven. But most often in the Old Testament, the word stars is used for Israel and the people of God. And that all started in Genesis chapter 15, where Abraham was told to look out at the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said, so shall your descendants be. Deuteronomy 1 verse 10, the Lord your God has multiplied you and behold, you are this day like the stars of heaven. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 23, you made the sons numerous as the stars of heaven. Consistently, the the children of Israel are called stars. And the only other time the word stars is used in the book of Daniel, flip over to Daniel chapter 12. Just to show you I'm not making this up, all right? Daniel chapter 12. Look at verse 3. It says, Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The only other time that stars is used in the book of Daniel, it's used of holy people. And what happened is these priests, these religious men, men who should have been shining like stars in the night, they fell to the earth and they were trampled under the foot of men. And this is the transgression that was running its course. You know, they were falling, giving in to the pressures around them. That's what verse 23 refers to when it says, the transgressors have run their course, that then this king would arise. The Jewish people were running their course in transgression, giving themselves over, you know, to these uh, different practices. And as Emil Schur again writes, had this process been allowed to go on in its natural course, then the Judaism of Palestine would probably have been, in time, assumed a form in which it would be scarcely recognizable. But just then, a powerful reaction set in, brought about by the attempt of an, of an unintelligent despot, Antiochus Epiphanes, prematurely and with rude violence to force upon them the Hellenic institutions. What is that saying? If, if he had just let them continue to you know, compromise themselves over time, they would have become just like all the rest of the Greeks. But instead of doing that, he wanted to force Hellenism upon them. I want you to become Greek. So he forced it upon them. He wasn't content to watch Jerusalem slowly give in to the process. He wanted to speed up the process and demand it. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, chapter 8. It says, speaking of this little horn, magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. What is that talking about? It's saying that Antiochus began to think about himself as a challenger to God himself. The commander of the hosts would be God. And he sought to remove the worship of God. In verse 25, it says, He will magnify himself in his heart. He will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes. That word prince of of princes is another way to speak about the highest ruler, the ruler of rulers, the chief of the chiefs, the captain of the captains. 
It's not like a prince below a king, but the, the greatest ruler, just another title for God in this case. And Antiochus magnified himself to the place of God, and we know from history that this is exactly what he did. Antiochus IV is more popularly known by the title that he gave himself, Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus Theos Epiphanes, which means Antiochus God Manifest. You want to see God, you're looking at him. God Manifest. He thought of himself as a manifestation of the god Zeus. He even had the inscription written on coins that he minted and circulated, Theos Epiphanes. I'm God. Epiphanes is God. God Manifest. And he would secretly, people would secretly refer to him as, instead of Antiochus Epiphanes, as Antiochus Epimenes, which sounds very similar, but they mean very different things. Epiphanes means the manifestation, you know. Epimenes means the madman. That's what they started to call him. He's Antiochus the madman. He's the madman. And he profaned the worship of God. Listen to this. In 168 BC, Antiochus was away on an expedition in Egypt. This time he was met by a Roman army that prevented him from going further. A Roman general named Gaius told him that if he didn't want to be an enemy of Rome, he had to leave Egypt alone. So Antiochus asked for some time to think it over, and the general said, fine, you can think it over. And then he drew a circle around Antiochus, and he says, you just have to make up your mind before you leave this circle. (laughs) And it was rumored that Antiochus had been killed. You know, Antiochus made up his mind that, you know, I'm not going to press the, the power of Rome. But it had been rumored that Antiochus had been killed. And he came back to Jerusalem and he took it as a rebellion, you know, that these people thought that he was dead and you know, actually uh, Jason was removed from office and he came back into office without Antiochus's uh, permission. So he saw all of this as a rebellion. These people think I'm dead. They're going to do what they want to do without me. And as Daniel chapter 8 verse 25 says, he will destroy many while they are at ease. And that's exactly what he did. 168 BC, he declared war on Jerusalem. He declared it a Greek city. One ancient history reports that he thought that Judea was in revolt and raging like a wild animal. He set out from Egypt and took Jerusalem by storm. He ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those whom they met to slay those who took refuge in their houses. There was a massacre of young and old, killing of women and children, a slaughter of virgins and infants. In the space of three days, 80,000 were lost, 40,000 met a violent death, and the same number was sold into slavery. And throughout the whole land of Jerusalem, the Jewish religion was to be rooted out. The worship of Greek gods was introduced. The observance of Sabbath and circumcision was punishable by death. All sacrifices were to be offered to the pagan deities. In the towns of Judah, they built pagan altars. At the doors of their houses, they offered illicit sacrifices. If anybody had a copy of the, the Jewish Old Testament, the book of the law, the Torah, or if they had a child that was circumcised, they were to be put to death. Whatever scrolls of the Torah they found, they burned them. They tore them up and burned them. Whoever was found with the scroll of the covenant or uh, showed love for the Torah was to be put to death. Women who had their sons circumcised, the sons were put to death and hung around their necks. They executed their husbands and the men who performed the circumcision. And on December of 168 BC, at the great altar of burnt offering, a pagan altar was built For the first time, a pig was sacrificed upon it, and then they took the pork and they stuffed it down the throat of the priests. It was called the abomination of desolation. 
It was a sacrifice to the Olympic god Zeus or Jupiter, Olympias. The temple of God was dedicated to Jupiter, and Jews were compelled to participate in the festival and march in the procession. And Antiochus made a decree that every month on that date, a sacrifice would be made to celebrate his birthday. And even though the temple still stood, Daniel 8, 11 says, it removed the regular sacrifice and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. Verse 12, Daniel chapter 8 says, and on account of the transgression, the host will be given over to the horn, the people given over to the horn, along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. They threw the truth to the ground. They literally burned the pages of Scripture and threw it to the ground. Stopped the regular sacrifice. And the question from the angelic watchers is, how long? How long is this going to go on for? How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply? And he said to me, 2,300 evenings and mornings. And what the angels indicate here is there's going to be an end to this. And there's a fascinating history behind the end to that because all of the stars did not drop to the earth during this time. And I don't have the time to get into all of the, the history. But there was one man by the name of Mattathias, a descendant of the priests who was outraged, refused to bow down to the pagan gods. And he says, though all the nations that are under the king's dominion obey him and fall away, everyone from the religion of their fathers and give consent to his commandments, yet will I and my sons and my brothers walk in the covenant of our fathers. God forbid that we should forsake the law and the ordinances. And when he saw a Jewish man preparing to offer a sacrifice, he rushed forward and slew him upon his altar and began what was known as the Maccabean Revolt. And we don't have the time to walk through all the history, but it's, it's a fascinating story. He and his sons launched a warfare against the Seleucids. They destroyed pagan altars, circumcised the children that they found. They attacked those who worshiped false gods. Mattathias had five sons, but one of his sons became the leader of the rebellion after his father died, and the name of his son was Judas, but they called him Maccabeus, which means the hammer. And under his leadership, the Jewish rebellion defeated the army of Antiochus and reclaimed the Jewish temple. The temple was cleansed, the defiled altar was torn down, and on December of 164 BC, a new altar was built and a burnt offering was offered on it. And according to the Torah, uh, the altar was dedicated and the sound of singing, music, and harps accompanied their celebration, and the dedication lasted for eight days. Judas and his brothers and the entire assembly of Israel decreed that the days of dedication of the altar should be observed annually for eight days, beginning with the 25th of the month Kislev, with joy and gladness, and we know that celebration today as the celebration of Hanukkah, which means dedication. And the Jewish people have celebrated this occasion ever since then, and we even find Jesus participating in the same celebration in the Gospel of John. Flip over to uh, John chapter 10 real quick. John chapter 10. Don't worry, we're going to get back and apply all this, all right? <laughs> John chapter 10, look at verse 22. Verse 22, it says, At that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. This is the same dedication that was started back during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. This, this is the same one. This is the time when the, the holy place was 
properly restored, December of 164. And if you work back 2,300 days from that date, it places you around the time that Onias, who was the, the faithful high priest, was removed and murdered, and when Antiochus began his persecution. Other scholars would argue that the 2,300 refers to morning and evening, the, uh, the evening and morning sacrifices, which uh, would amount to 1,150 days, which brings you closer to the time that the temple was defiled. But either way, it's referring to this limited period of time. And this brings us to what is such an important observation to make. And if you want to know what application we're supposed to walk away from this text with, here it is, God wins. Righteousness will triumph over wickedness. It doesn't matter how evil or how out of control things become in the world. The victory belongs to the Lord. And even the greatest personification of evil is no match for the commander of hosts. Listen to this. This this is just so astounding when you look at this. You cannot merely look at this text as a battle between the Seleucid Empire, the Seleucid Empire, Antiochus Epiphanes, and uh, Jerusalem. You cannot look at this as, you know, the battle between Antiochus and the Maccabees. You cannot look at this as just a battle between the righteous and the wicked. There's a battle that's going on that's at a much greater scale that's behind all of this. Just like the book of Job was about much more than one man's trial, it was about a challenge between God and Satan. In the same way behind what we find in Daniel chapter 8, there's really a greater battle that's taking place between God and Satan. Who was the little horn really trying to do battle against? Who who was this little horn really trying to do battle against? Chapter 8, verse 11. It magnified itself to be equal with the commander of hosts. He was really trying to do battle with God to remove his sacrifice, to remove his worship. And verse 25 says he'll oppose the prince of princes. Again, talking about God. He was battling against God. And when God defeated Antiochus, who was he really defeating? Look at Daniel chapter 8, verse 24. You might skip over this quickly, but so significant. Daniel chapter 8, look at verse 24. Speaking about Antiochus, it says, His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. He will destroy to an extraordinary degree. When it says he's going to have this mighty power, but it's not his own power. Whose power do you think he was operating in? He was operating in the power of Satan. This is not by his own power that's energizing him. And this explains the kind of language that was used of Antiochus as well as the language that we find elsewhere in Scripture. For example, in Genesis chapter 3, God is speaking to a snake. But is God just speaking to a snake? (laughs) He's speaking to the one who's behind the snake. The one who's behind the snake. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the hill. He's talking to the one who's behind him. So yes, the physical snake fell to the ground and started licking the dust, but God was also speaking to the one who was behind him. We understand that the snake was more than just a snake. Flip over to Isaiah chapter 14. This this is fascinating. This is fascinating. Isaiah chapter 14. This is uh, God speaking to Babylon, okay? God is speaking to Babylon here. Isaiah chapter 14. Take a look at at verse 12. And, and we refer to these scriptures often, but I'm not sure if we all, all, all the time put them together. Isaiah chapter 14, look at verse 12. Listen to what he says. How have you fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn? 
You've been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook kingdoms? Who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities? Who did not allow his prisoners to to go home? So here we have God is speaking to Babylon, but guess who else he's speaking about? The one who's behind Babylon. You know, the one who tried to make himself like the most high God is Satan. He's the one that's energizing Babylon. And this language, all the language just doesn't fit Babylon. It's talking about the one who's behind it. In the same way, and here's a clear example, flip over to the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel, right behind, right before uh, uh, Daniel. Flip over to Ezekiel chapter 28. Again, we refer to it often, but it's the, the same kind of fulfillment that we find here. Ezekiel chapter 28. Look at verse 12. Here, it's a prophecy against the king of Tyre. The king of Tyre. Chapter 28, starting at verse 12. I'll start at verse 11. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre. So we're talking about the king of Tyre here, okay? And say to him, thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. Excuse me? (laughs) Was the king of Tyre in Eden? No. He's talking to the king of Tyre, but he's also talking to the one who's behind the king of Tyre. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis, the lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, uh, a word used for an angel, who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. Can that be said of the king of Tyre? Blameless in his ways from the day he was created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. We would have to agree that there's more going on here than just talking to the king of Tyre. God is speaking to the entity behind the king of Tyre. And the same is true for Antiochus Epiphanes. In Daniel chapter 8, when it speaks about the one who grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth. Yes, he's talking about Antiochus, but he's also making a reference to the one who is behind Antiochus. The one who energized Antiochus. The one, the one who created this hatred for God in Antiochus. The, the one who caused him to be an enemy of the people of God. Satan has been the enemy of the people of God from the beginning, right? Since Genesis chapter 3 at least. But in the end, guess who wins? God does. And just like Antiochus had a limited time, so does Satan. And this is where this little horn of chapter 7 and chapter 8 are connected. Because Antiochus was just a smaller picture of what's going to happen in the future. There's coming another one who will produce an abomination of desolation. He's speaking about the one who's to come as well, who will also be energized and controlled by Satan. And God wins in the end. 
We see an example of the beast in the past, and there's coming a beast in the future. And God will win over both. How do we know that God will win over that antichrist, that beast who is to come? Because he's already proven it in the past. The same God is the one who will win, and he will be broken without human agency, is what verse 25 says. According to history, lets us know that the death of Antiochus came upon him without human hands. Listen to this history on Antiochus. A messenger reached him in Persia with the news that his armies had been which had marched into the land of Judah, had been routed, that the Jews had destroyed the abomination which he built upon the altar in Jerusalem, and they had surrounded the temple. When the king heard this news, he was thunderstruck and so deeply dismayed that he took to his bed and sank in melancholia because his plots had been foiled. There he lay for many days as his great distress grew worse. Finally, he realized that he was dying. He summoned all of his friends and said to them, Sleep has fled from my eyes and the weight of anxiety has broken my heart. I've said to myself, how deep I've sunk in distress. How great is the tempest which has now come upon me. I have come to understand that because of these deeds of these evils have come upon me as I die in great agony on foreign soil. He died without a human hand touching him, without human hands, broken without human agency. And the same is going to be true for a future beast who will come. It's going to be destroyed without human agency. Matthew 24 speaks about another abomination of desolation. But in verse 29 of chapter 24, it says, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and with great glory. And he will destroy this beast with the word of his mouth. God wins. Amen. And he's proven himself over and over and over again. So it doesn't matter what the scoreboard says. This gives us confidence that, that Christ wins. Even though we might look defenseless. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And you might say to yourself, like, Jesus, are you sure you're right about that? <laughs> like, why can't we be lions in the midst of wolves? You know, victorious lions in the midst of wolves. Or at least be wolves in the midst of wolves. You know, at least we have a fighting chance. Wolves in the midst of wolves. But sheep in the midst of wolves? I mean, we're, we're outnumbered. We're outgunned. We're outmanned. Like, like, surely you don't mean to send us out as sheep in the midst of wolves, do you? But that's who we are as believers. We're sheep in the midst of wolves. And to so many around us, we just look like lunch. You know, we will just trample these Christians down. They're defenseless. They're hopeless. There's, there's nothing that they can do to stop us. We'll do whatever we want to do. Defenseless on our own. But, but here's, here's the beauty of Jesus sending us out as sheep in the midst of the wolves. is because the one who sends us out is the shepherd. <laughs> the one who sends us out in the midst of wolves is the shepherd. And we don't have to fear because the shepherd is with us. We're in the midst of wolves, but the shepherd is with us. And we're called to be stars in the heavens and to stand firm. I like what Calvin said. He says, although the sons of God are pilgrims on the earth, they've scarcely any dwelling place here, becoming like castaways before men, yet they are nevertheless citizens of heaven. And we are often thrown prostrate to the ground, 
and tyrants and despisers of God look down upon us with scorn. Meanwhile, our seat is laid up in heaven and God numbers us as the stars of the sky. Philippians 2.15 says, Prove yourselves to be blameless, innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. So are we going to teach through the second half of Daniel? Absolutely. (laughs) And there's so much more to learn. We haven't even finished it, but uh, we'll come back to it next week. But uh, praise God for all that we have to learn from this. We belong to a great Savior. The commander of the hosts is with us. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much uh, for this time that we've had together in your word. Now, Father, I pray that you would help us, uh, Lord, as we think about these things, Lord, that it wouldn't just be uh, words on a page, just history, and I know we covered a lot of history today, but Father, I pray that this wouldn't just be history to us, that this would be your story. It's his story. This is your story, God. This is what you do in the world. You're the God who's orchestrating everything behind the scenes. There, there, there's nobody who can, who can stay your hand or thwart your power. Now, Father, we, we serve the omnipotent God, incredible, that you are the one who rules over the kingdoms of the earth, and you set over it the lowliest of men. And one day, our Savior will return and claim what is rightfully his. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. And it's at that time that our life, which is now hidden, a life that is now trampled upon, a life that's now uh, trivialized by, by many, just excused as, as nothing. Now, Father, that in that day, Lord, that we will appear as what we truly are, as what you've made us to be, as lights in the world, stars of the heavens, uh, that we will be in the presence of Christ and that we will be like him because we will see him as he is. In Jesus' name we praise you and we give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.